0: So I wanted to start tonight's talk by reading a little story. And, um, this story is by the, um, uh, Palestinian-American, um, author and poet, Naomi Shahab Nye. shared another poem by her, um, five weeks ago, (laughs) this retreat. So the name of this um, story is Gate 4A. Here it goes. Wandering around the Albuquerque airport terminal after learning my flight had been detained for hours, I heard an announcement. If anyone in the vicinity of Gate 4A understands any Arabic, please come to the gate immediately. Well, one pauses these days. Gate 4A was my own gate. I went there. An older woman in full traditional Palestinian embroidered dress, just like my grandma wore, was crumpled to the floor, wailing loudly, Help, said the flight service person. Talk to her. What is her problem? We told her the flight was going to be late, and she did this. I stopped to put my arm around the woman and spoke to her haltingly. This is my attempt of reading the the Arabic. habibi habibti stani min fadlik Shubit sewi. This is what she says to her. The minute she heard any words she knew, however poorly used. She stopped crying. She thought the flight had been cancelled entirely. She needed to be in El Paso for major medical treatment the next day. I said, you're fine. You'll get there. Who is picking you up? Let's call him. We called her son and I spoke with him in English. I told him I would stay with his mother till we got on the plane and would ride next to her southwest. She talked to him. Then we called her other sons just for fun. Then we called my dad and he, had, he and she spoke for a while in Arabic and found out, of course, they had 10 shared friends. Then I thought, just for the heck of it, why not call some Palestinian poets I know and let them chat with her. This all took up about two hours. She was laughing a lot by then, telling about her life, patting my knee, answering questions. She had pulled a sack of homemade mamul cookies, little powdered sugar crumbly mounds stuffed with dates and nuts, out of her bag and was offering them to all the women at the gate. To my amazement, not a single woman declined one. It was like like a sacrament. The traveler from Argentina, the mom from California, the lovely woman from Laredo, we were all covered with the same powdered sugar all smiling and there is there is no better cookie and then the airline broke out the free beverages from huge coolers and two little girls from our flight ran around serving us all apple juice and they were covered with powdered sugar too and i noticed my new best friend by now we were holding hands had a potted plant poking out of her bag some medicinal thing with green fairy leaves such an old country such an old country traveling tradition always carry a plant always stay rooted to somewhere and I looked around the gate of late and weary ones and thought this is the world I want to live in the shared world not a single person in this gate once the crying and of confusion stopped seemed apprehensive about any other person they took the cookies they took the cookies. I wanted to hug all those other women too. This can still happen anywhere. Not everything is lost. I love that story. It's an image of a shared world with metta, with care, with sharing. Sharing understanding, friends, chats, powdered sugar cookies. It's, It's a sweet image. And that's what what we're working towards here, that's what we're doing here. We're not just sitting here to be good sitters or good metaphrase repeaters. That's not the point. The point is that is shared humanity, this world changing the world we want to live in, a different vision for who we want to be and the kind of world we want to create one person at a time. So we're pretty much halfway through the retreat now. And you know, we've offered you options for phrases, -phrases, metaphrases, and you've been experimenting some of you, sentences, words, sometimes dropping the words altogether and radiating metta. Just all of these are skillful means for developing, cultivating this feeling of, of goodwill, friendliness with yourself, with those you care about, who care about you, and those around you, the world experience in general, friendliness with experience. I wanted to say um, a couple of words, maybe a couple of practical words that have come up for me about the practice that we've been sharing and have been coming up. and That part of it is about um, about the relationship between the phrased and the phraseless, and the, the radiating metta. One is that, you know, they're not really different, like, different practices. They're the same practice. It's just that often we start with the practice of metta with phrases and image and tapping into the feeling. It's like a three-ring circus. One ring of the circus being the image of the person, um, you're doing metaphor, the second ring of the circus being the feeling that comes up and the th- third ring being the phrases. It's like a three ring circus you're keeping going, right? And you do that and you do that and after a while when it really gets going and and um, samadhi, quote unquote, concentration. Both We don't like that word but we use it. When you really get into the flow, but when you really get into the flow, Sometimes you might even notice, ooh, th- these sentences—they're just feels too much, too heavy, right? And then, naturally, it feels like they become words. They become words. Instead so of "May you be safe from inner and outer harm," you might become "May you be safe," and then you might just become "Safe, safe, happy, healthy, ease," and you might find that they get kind of synchronized with your breathing. It just kind of becomes your breathing in safety, your breathing out safety, it just kind of becomes more natural. And At some point, even the words feel too heavy. Just the attention to all of that, it just feels like too much. And your mind just naturally drops it. Like, oh yeah, this feels right. And then you naturally find yourself in the practice of radiating metta so not to see these as different practices they're on the continuum and some people right away they find it easy to do one but usually we kind of like warm up and it happens that we we find ourselves in one after we're really warmed up it naturally um develops it's like the image that came up for me is um swimming so I I love to swim that's my main uh, way of exercising and and years and years ago when I started I was really bad my strokes were so inefficient there were sh- they were clearly inefficient but I kept doing them I remember my breathing was extremely inefficient years and maybe 20 years ago so inefficient that I would blow um, air out of my nose so much that by the end of swimming Uh, there would be some blood coming, you know, I would burst some some little uh, blood vessels, it was so inefficient, but I kept doing it, I kept swimming, I kept swimming, and little by little, realized, I kind of like, oh, this is inefficient, maybe I should do this, oh, I don't need to blow so hard, it just, the whole movement of swimming became streamlined, I just did it, I just kept doing it, it just kind of worked itself out, um, in a way, these practices are like that. You keep doing, you kind of realize, oh, I don't have to say it so loud. The phrases, oh, I don't have to say it like this. Oh, I can, you know, maybe or, um, say the phrases or the words with the rhythm of my rhythm of my walking or my breathing. And you just kind of figure this out when you do it. When you keep doing it, it just kind of like your mind figures it out. Like, oh yeah, and you get in the flow, and then it becomes more and more fun. The way swim swimming became more and more fun for me, when all of that wasted energy and kind of not knowing what the heck I was doing with my limbs kind of like worked itself out. So, and that comes through continuity, continuity, the sea in grace that I mentioned a couple of days ago. Continuity hanging in there, really doing it, and then with radiating metta practice. If it really works for you and that's the place that you want to land and start there, that's perfectly fine. That's great. Go for it. And sometimes some people um, might find um, that they find the generating too exhausting. It feels like, oh, it's too tiring. I'm generating these fields of, you know, this energy of metta. Like, oh, I'm exhausted. So a suggestion would be, it's not so much, you're not generating the, the goodwill, the metta. Think that, feel that it's already there. It's, it's, you're sitting in a field of metta, of goodwill, that is this world. And this goodwill is just shining through you. It's just, it's like when you turn on a light. You don't sit there like, okay, shine, shine, okay, you know, you're not, Ah, oh. It just, the light already shines on its own. So, f- so as if you're sitting in a field of metta, it shines on its own. You're just the the conduit. Of allowing it to shine through you, and while it is being radiated, or 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 um, being sh- or being shined through you, it's also touching you as it's going out. So it's touching you first. So that's self-metta. This radiation of metta, radiating, touches you first. And there's not so much doing to there; just being there, allowing it to shine through. So it might take away some of this. Doing aspect—it's really radiating metta—is a being practice. It's not so much a doing practice. The other ones are doing. You're saying the phrases. You're doing all that stuff. Radiating is more being than doing. And I usually recommend that to people, especially this practice of radiating, when they're doers. They like doing, and there's a lot of um, over striving. So it becomes a practice of being. So, one thing that came up last night in the questions, the Q&A, um, was the relationship between metta compassion and mudita, vicarious joy. And I wanted to talk more about that actually tonight, especially since not everyone was present for the Q&A yesterday. Um, I think it's an important aspect, um of this practice because it is going to come up, it has come up. If it hasn't come up, it will come up, surely has come up already for you. So, there are four practices, these four practices in Theravada, um, they're known as the Brahma Viharas, these practices of the heart, which literally mean abodes of Brahma, (laughs) or and Brahma means the gods or heavenly and Vihara means abode or dwelling so these four practices are known as heavenly dwellings or the abode of the gods they're also known as the four immeasurables I think I might have mentioned But when I was practicing the Brahma-viharas, these four practices, the metta being the first one of them, um, on a uh, month-long retreat a few years ago, um, where my mind felt really safe and my heart was happy, it really felt like I was experiencing heaven on earth. It's the closest I've come to experiencing heaven, whatever that is. Complete peace, joy, happiness, ease, lightness. So at that point I got it why these were called Brahma-viharas, heavenly abodes, all four of them. Not to say every moment of your practice would be like that, but that's the direction we're, we're going. That's the direction of these practices. It's also said that when when practitioners practice this, these practices, they are, after they die, if you believe in rebirth, they are born in heavenly realms, if their hearts are imbued in this. And whether you take that as a multi-life model, as rebirth, or just in this world, you can think of it as if you're if your heart if your mind is in the state of metta the next moment you will be born into likely will be a happier moment than an an unhappy moment so you can think of it as a one life model instead of multi-life model so in theravada as i mentioned the um the central practice is metta. Metta, loving kindness, friendliness, goodwill is the main one where the other three really come out of it. Whereas say in the Tibetan tradition, the central one is compassion. Compassion is the central uh, practice. But since we're in Theravada, this is what I'm going to orient you and, and talk about so the main of the four being metta which we've been talking about goodwill a sense of friendliness a a sense of a feeling of love free from clinging and expectation so just to share again feeling of this this is a feeling of goodwill just a basic sense of goodwill and kindness that comes from our heart and touches a being that is neither um, suffering nor in the state of joy. Kind of, you know, the, the object of it is, the object of goodwill is in a neutral place. When this goodwill, when this sense of metta, friendliness, comes across someone, a being, who is suffering, then that metta gets expressed as compassion. Goodwill becomes compassion because it's holding the suffering. It's holding the suffering. When that goodwill, when the metta, that basic feeling, it comes across someone who's doing really, really well, is really happy, just their life is flourishing, they're doing great. Then that feeling gets expressed as mudita, as vicarious joy. I'm happy for your happiness. May your happiness increase, may it never wane. I'm so happy for you, yay, this is great. Just really genuinely happy for their happiness. Can you identify with this? Have you felt happy, genuinely happy for another person's happiness? Ever felt that genuinely? Yeah. usually easiest for people we love and really care about. We're just celebrating. Their happiness is our happiness. And it's interesting about this one. The Dalai Lama has said, If we're only happy for our own happiness, our chances of happiness is one out of seven billion. (laughs) (laughs) If we're happy for other people's happiness, that that increases. (laughs) And the last of the four is equanimity, equanimity, upeka, upeka. And Upeka literally the, the Pali word um upeka means to see or to oversee, overview. It's it's having a bird's eye view perspective on a situation, not being caught in a situation. So you can see that equanimity can arise when you have a big picture of a situation, a bird's eye view of the situation, when you're not caught in the detail and being pulled aside, but really an oru overseeing. So the feeling of equanimity is, it's said, the same feeling of metta when it comes across a being that is suffering in an overwhelming way, and the metta can't really hold it with compassion, then that, that naturally becomes upekha, really taking the bird's eye view of what is happening. That's one way to see upeka. Another way to see the relationship of upekha to the other four, the other three Brahma-viharas is that equanimity, upekha, actually serves as the bedrock, serves as the basis on which all of them rest, because without equanimity, none of them will function properly. I will describe more because really you need that stability, the of of upeka, the stability, not in order not to to, for example, for compassion to become empathetic distress like oh or not to become aloof and really remote i'll say more about the relationship in a moment but but that's one way to see equanimity is really supporting all of these so that they don't fall into into what's called near and far enemies of themselves again i'll say more in a moment Just to say that these four practices, these four Brahma Viharas, as we've mentioned, um, you know, these are also taught, not as just as practices to expand the heart, but also as Samadhi practices, as concentration practice to really Settle, unify the mind and heart um, into what are called um, absorptions or jhanas. These are some of the practices. In fact, there are 40 different objects, um, for, 40 ways of of unifying and collecting the mind. Samatha practices mentioned in Visuddhimagga, in Path of Purification, and four of them are the Brahma Viharas. So, the practice that you've been doing, metta, is really a practice. When you do it continuously, it calms the mind. It really is like a lullaby. It just calms the mind. It can calm the body when you do it continuously. And this hasn't come up so much really in this retreat, but but it often comes up as a question for people when they do the practice of metta and brahma as the other ones. Um, heavenly abodes that um, some type of wishful thinking magical thinking comes up it has happened on previous retreats where people have said okay I've been doing metta for this friend of mine who has this illness and I can't wait to go and call them at the end of retreat and see if they're better that's not exactly the point of metta Um, it's I mean, as mentioned before, it's really a way for us to expand our heart, our capacity to care and hold and be with. And in fact, being attached to the outcome in the world, doing it so badly you want something to happen. It's, it's it, it becomes attachment and it completely changes the practice. It becomes complicated and it becomes difficult and you're just checking your your watch every five minutes for results even for yourself you're taking five because you're attached okay am i a kinder person now okay this working am i nicer to myself let me drop a jar (laughs) 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 so again being attached to outcome that way doesn't work so well just trusting that that this is a practice that that does work So, and, and again, this practice will transform you and your relationship to other people. It will do that. Um, the story popped up. I remember on a retreat um, years ago, I, um, when we got to the neutral person, which we will get to, think tomorrow. Um, so for a neutral person I remember I chose someone who, whom I kind of knew uh, as a human being but didn't really know them. They were really a neutral person before the retreat for me. It was the person who worked at a laundromat in my neighborhood. Um, I'd seen her once or twice. So she became my neutral person on this retreat. So I was doing lots of metaphor. may you be safe, may you be happy, may you be well, imagining her being happy and just all of that. And then I remember when I went back home, I couldn't wait to go to the laundromat. <laughs> I remember walking past it, kind of looking in to see if she was there. And, and once I took my clothes there and and I noticed she was so friendly to me. I wondered why <laughs> um, it was just interesting you know I wanted to, to talk with her and see how she was and so this practice will change a relationship to people without without um, you know you so much really trying it just it will happen because you will change because you will change it's not so much the magical thinking of making them like you or you will just you will change so what are these near and far enemies so this is the older language um used so the near enemy and each of the four brahma viharas have one near and far enemy Near enemy is a quality that can um masquerade as the original, but it's not really the original. So it kind of feels very close, but it's not the real deal. But it can be confused at times. The far enemy is easy to distinguish. It's just the opposite quality. So what are they? And and just to say, if the if the near and far enemies, quote unquote, come up, don't worry, it's not... Like you're doing it wrong. They're also part of the purification practice that will come up with these practices. And there will naturally come up, um, and maybe they need to come up for you to see them, for them to be seen, and worked with, and processed, and held with kindness. So, with metta, with goodwill, friendliness, the near enemy is thought of as attachment so when you're practicing metta and there is some expectation some attachment weaved in there then it's not the real thing anymore it's masqueraded as the real thing attachment can show up as expecting results for yourself expecting results for others expecting other people to like you love you expecting you know, I'm going to really you know, send you metta so that you love me in return, so that you really send me metta in return, etc., etc. Just a lot of attachment. Um, it's basically love with strings attached is not true love. The far enemy is pretty easy to see for metta, it's hatred which can also express itself as anger or ill will, it is said. And it can come up when you least expect it, as part of purification. You know, you can be do, doing metta for your dear friend, and an argument you had years ago can come up, and it could feel really fresh and unprocessed, and that's okay, it's part of this practice. It can come up, for far enemy or it can come up in the hall when somebody moves or shifts or coughs or maybe they're sick and they're opening up a cough drop and what comes in your mind is like how dare you interrupt my metta I'm developing friendliness and kindness shut up (laughs) stop making noise it can happen (laughs) you won't be the first (laughs) just to recognize that so it really becomes practice our friendliness towards everything and everyone and every opportunity every little opportunity is opportunity for practice the second of the two is karuna karuna compassion and the near enemy is pity and sympathetic or empathetic distress they're not the real thing We fall into them, thinking they're compassion, but they're not. I'll say a lot more about this in a moment, so this is just a placeholder. And just to let you know, the far enemy is cruelty. far enemy of compassion is quite the opposite, is being cruel. For mudita, sympathetic joy, appreciation, being happy for others' happiness, or joy at the good fortune of others near enemy is comparison comparing yourself comparing your joy your happiness your success it can happen don't feel bad it's okay these are parts of the purification it's not a problem nothing is a problem in practice it's just an opportunity for more practice another aspect of the near enemy is joy for others but tinged with identification oh it's my team or it's my child and really happy but kind of like it's that attachment that comes through with this tinge another near enemy is over exuberance and i've definitely had this one on retreats before where i was so happy for somebody else's happiness that i kind of got drunk Whoa, it's just like too high energy gets way, way too high. You get so happy for somebody else's happiness, it's like almost like you've had like a bottle of champagne, it's really bubbly, over exuberant. It feels good, but that's not exactly it. It's a little more balanced. So, the far enemy of mudita, I appreciate sympathetic joy, is envy, and that one is pretty clear to say when you're maybe doing metta for your dear friend and becomes mudita, you're happy for their happiness and then you're not so happy for their happiness anymore. You're just envious of, they're happy in this way and I'm not. And It becomes another practice. Maybe at that point it becomes a practice of of self-compassion for yourself because you're hurting in that moment in the fire of envy. Equanimity, upekka, the near enemy is indifference. And that's actually sometimes a little harder to, to differentiate because somehow this image that upekka, equanimity needs to be kind of cool and indifferent and detached. And that's not equanimity. Actually equanimity has, has a warmth to it. And I really got to see this in my personal practice. Where, you know, equanimity, the reason why equanimity is part of the Brahma Viharas, is part of this pair of four, which the rest of them, you know, you really can see that they have a warmth quality to the mind. And sometimes you wonder, huh, why is equanimity stuck in there? Equanimity seems kind of cool, like aloof, but it's not. There's a reason why it's in there, because it too... Even though it's, it's a stability that has warmth, it's a stability that cares. It's not indifferent, like, whoa, 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 not in my backyard. It's not that it cares, and yet it's completely stable. It's neither moving towards nor moving away. It's neither falling into, like, okay, towards, nor moving away from. It's completely stable, and yet it has warmth and care. It cares and it's stable and unmovable and that's very different from indifference where it just eh, don't kinda care, it's kinda cool. The far enemy of upeka equanimity is um, anxiety or overwhelm. It's not stable anymore, it's completely overwhelmed. And it's also it's either greed, you know wanting, falling into something or not wanting, kind of wanting to get away from it. So either getting too close, wanting to get too close, or wanting to get too far, those are the opposites, the, the far enemies of equanimity. So I'd like to spend a little more time now talking about compassion, which I put on a post-it note, and I said I will talk about more. Because I think compassion is a particularly important one out of the four, besides metta that we're practicing, because it has come up, it will come up. It's where metta comes into suffering, comes across suffering, either for ourselves, or it becomes self-compassion, or for others, noticing other people's suffering compassion for others and also because the practice of compassion is pretty close to my heart um i spent about a year of of my practice formally um doing compassion practices and this is when i was going through the training at at stanford c- compassion cultivation training um the teacher training there, it's a curriculum. It's an eight-week course developed um, by researcher scientist, as well as Tukten Jempa who's a scholar and also best known perhaps as, a, was, he's a Tibetan scholar and, and also best known as a Dalai Lama's translator. And it's in the Tibetan tradition, so compassion was really central in those, in the course, and the practices. So I spent a year of my personal practice Practicing compassion and reading about compassion in different ways and different perspectives and discussing and writing and Ate compassion drank compassion breathed compassion for a year. So it's it's uh, It's it's practice that's close to my heart Um, and also personally it's a practice that has been my personal lifeline um, some of you might know that I've had a chronic condition, Lyme disease, I've had it for many, many years and I've had a lot of pain, a lot of disability, a lot that I've had to, to work with and really self-compassion for me has been my lifeline. Um, I don't know where I would be or what would I do without practice of self-compassion. Um. it's a very powerful and empowering practice so so what is compassion what is compassion so one way the way that it was um, I described it is when this goodwill of the heart this metta comes across some suffering and pain it holds the pain so it's It's both an expression of care and an acknowledgement of suffering. It's both. It's not just one or the other. It's not blind to the suffering, and it's not just the suffering alone. It's both. Both have to be balanced, the care and the acknowledgement of suffering. Another way to see that is being with suffering with an authentic wish, wish for its alleviation. so for me experientially really this practice has had three parts two of them prominent and one of them the platform as i mentioned so one aspect is tapping into the suffering acknowledging the suffering holding the suffering and acknowledging for, for that this is hard especially for self-compassion we often don't acknowledge that we're going through something that's difficult. Oh, this is fine. I'm okay. This is hard. This is hard, dear one. This is hard. Just acknowledging that this is hard. I'm going through a hard time right now. Just that. Acknowledging that, yeah, this is hard. This sucks. This is hard. That is an important admission. So Instead I'm of trying to make light of it or muscle our way through it, or, etc., which is culturally seems to be... Espouse, but really recognizing this is hard. This is hard. Also for others, this is hard. What you're going through, is hard. Sometimes those are magic words. People realize, oh yeah, this is hard. What I'm going through, yeah, of course, it's this. I'm having a hard because this is hard. This is this is not simple. So acknowledging the suffering either for ourselves or for others that you're going through a hard time this is difficult and the word compassion come is together and passion party to suffer to suffer together to kind of recognize the suffering to recognize that this is hard this is hard so that's one aspect of it. What's the other aspect? The uh, the other aspect, as I mentioned, is really that sense of goodwill, care, affection, the heart's desire to be with, to alleviate. So if it's self-compassion, it's like, oh yeah, this is hard, this is hard. And then, ah, I care for your pain. I care for my pain. Or if it's somebody else, I care. It's not like this is hard and come on, get on with it. You know, it's this is hard and I care. Warmth, support, goodwill, which which is that aspect of metta we were talking about. The third aspect of it is really that, that bedrock of equanimity I was talking about. These two are a- able to function if they're an unstable bedrock of equanimity. If there is the spaciousness, then they can be held. Otherwise, we can tap into the far and near enemies, either overwhelm, pity, etc., etc. So, this is a good time to actually talk about. Actually, let me just pause. So going back, so the three aspects, recognizing the difficulty, this is hard. Having the metta, the care, the goodwill, both of these on a platform of stability, of equanimity, which will help not falling into the near and far enemies. So what are the near and far far enemies? Again, let's discuss them. The near enemy is pity. Pity is comparative, less than, and it creates a sense of separateness and distance, and it gratifies the ego, and it often happens for others. Like pity, oh, poor them with their lot in life. That would never happen to me. That could never happen. It couldn't be me. Instead of, oh, that could be me, I, I, or, I, or I suffer in the same way. Or I could suffer in the same way. I'm not immune to what they're going through if lots in life changed. So in that way, we're in the same level instead of pity. It's like, I'm up here and you, poor you, you down here, you're suffering over there. So that's not compassion. The other near enemy is sympathetic distress, overwhelm, anguish, grief. And that's actually a lot of times what people, when w- when we talk about compassion, people say, oh, compassion is too hard, I can't do it. They're really not talking about compassion because compassion, actually, the practice of it feels good. It warms the heart, and I'll talk about it in a moment. It's a, It feels lovely. That's why it's a Brahma Vihara. You wouldn't be suffering in the Brahma Vihara in a heavenly abode, right? It actually feels lovely to have compassion for yourself or others. What doesn't feel good is immersion or identification with suffering of others or yourself that leads to anguished reaction, like falling into it. Like it's like somebody else is, is um, suffering in, in the waves bobbing up and down, and you jump into it with them. It's like, oh, this is terrible, this is terrible, instead of being on a stable bedrock and extending a, a caring hand. So that's overwhelm. That's sympathetic distress which doesn't help anybody. It, that's not compassion. And you feel like you're doing something because now you're also pulling your hair out and you're beating your chest, but it's not helping anybody. That's not compassion. It's over overwhelmed. Instead of balancing that with the, on the bedrock of equanimity with true care, this is hard and I care. And how can I help? What also is not compassion is um, empathy alone. Empathy alone is one aspect of compassion, but it's not the, the full deal, it's not the whole thing. So, empathy, as defined by researchers, is the visceral or emotional experience of other people's feelings. And in a sense, it's an automatic mirroring through mirror neurons of another person's emotions like tearing up when a friend is sad alone on its own it can lead to to sympathetic distress to empathetic distress if it's not supported by care meta goodwill on the platform of equanimity so it's part of it but it's not the entire thing it's needed its empathy is needed but it's kind of halfway there to compassion. The far enemy of compassion are cruelty. That's one is easy. Don't have to describe too much. The other one is schadenfreude, happiness at others' misfortune which can come up. Especially if that person is someone who's not in our circle, is our person we're having difficulty with or our difficult person, that can come up sometimes. So, so to say that compassion actually does supposed to feel good, and it does feel, it's it's one of the Brahma Viharas. And there's research showing that there are couple of different areas of the brain that light up both the area that the the neural network that um, that is responsible for empathy for pain so if you see somebody else being for example jabbed with with needles you will feel that pain there's an area of your brain that will light up but also with with compassion there's another, there two, these two areas, the other area of the brain that will light up is um, associated with um, emotions and filial um, connection. Filial, so it's a sense of warmth, sense of connection, like being um, closeness, um, feeling that, for example, being safe with, your, with um, a loved one brings up in you there's a story that I've told many times and, and this really clarified it for me that once, um, it was Tanya Singer, who's a well-known neuroscientist. And she was talking about the research that she was doing on, um, compassion. And she asked the well-known, um, um, monk, Mathieu Ricard, um, to to be in the fmri machine and what she asked him to okay not do compassion just contemplate the suffering of the world so he's in there contemplate the suffering of the world and and matthew ricard has done decades of compassion practice so they run the test they look at the the areas of the brain that are lighting up um, the fmri and sure enough it's the first area i talked about um, the one that, that lights up when we we're, when we're have empathy for pain. So they open the fMRI, bring him up, and say, okay, done. says, no, no, I feel terrible. I feel awful. Please put me back. I want to do the proper compassion meditation. Like, okay, put him back. He does the compassion meditation. Like, ah, uh, not just contemplating the suffering of the world, but bringing in care, love, warmth, caring about that ah both areas light up bring him out ah okay that feels a lot better so if you're practicing compassion that's what it feels like there's a it's um, it, it it's not a difficult practice in that way it's a Brahma Vihara it's a heavenly abode either for yourself or for others it feels soothing calming. It feels good. So, self-compassion, it's a particularly important aspect of our practice. And if you spend many days here, in fact, on, on the course I mentioned, the Stanford Compassion Cultivation, eight-week course. Everything else we dedicate one week to, but self-compassion we dedicate two weeks to. There's a reason. And often at the end of the course, many people report that the most transformative aspect of the course was self-compassion. So if you find yourself on this retreat being drawn to self-compassion, please, please do self-compassion as much as you want as much as you need, as much as you're called for. It's important practice. Because really filling your own well, your own cup, um, allows you to then be there for, for others. Someone today shared this phrase with me in a practice meeting which I really like to share with others, not from your reservoir, um, but from your, um, I forget the extra word, um, what was it? Not from your reservoir, but for your extra? Oh, what was it? It was a more elegant word. Oh, I forgot it. I didn't write it down because it was so easy to remember. Next time, next talk, I'll bring it up. Um. But that's that's the idea. Not from your own reservoir, not from what you have, but also from overflow. That was the word. From your overflow. So when your heart is really overflowing, overflowing when you've really fed your own heart with compassion and care and you're overflowing that's when it's much easier to wish it for others and of course sometimes it's harder to do that for ourselves for the reasons we've mentioned so it might be easier to actually use the image of loved ones and them as a way to to bring compassion to ourselves and feel loved and cared for so whatever works for you Experiment. It's all open. A lot more I can say. I usually have a lot more than I have time for. But maybe what to finish with. Maybe I'll finish with, with this. This is, this is a story about compassion, really compassion for someone who really received compassion, um, from strangers and how it affected them. And in some ways it's, it's a difficult story. So it has to do with suicide and grief. So this is a trigger warning just to let you know. It's a pretty heavy story um, and I, I think it really makes the point of how, um, yeah, how it can affect people's lives with, with um, compassion can. So here we go. And this was on a website I found by the way. It's by Deborah Green and it was posted on a website. It's kind of a public letter that she wrote. Dear strangers, I remember you, ten months ago when my cell phone rang with news of my father's suicide. You were walking into Whole Foods, prepared to go about your food shopping, just as I had done only minutes before. But I had already abandoned my cart full of groceries, and I stood in the entryway of the store. My brother was on the other end of the line. He was telling me my father was dead that he had taken his own life early that morning. And through his own sobs, I remember my brother kept saying, I'm sorry, Deborah, I am so sorry. I can't imagine how I must have felt for him to make the call. And as we hung up the phone, I started to cry and scream as my whole body trembled. This just couldn't be true. It couldn't be happening. Only moments before I was filling my cart with groceries, Going about my errands on a normal Monday morning, only moments before my life felt intact, overwhelmed with emotions, I fell to the floor, my knees buckling under the weight of what I had just learned, and you kind strangers, you were there. you could have kept walking, you, c- you could have kept on walking, ignoring my cries, but you didn't. You could have simply stopped and stared at my primal display of pain, but you didn't. No, instead you surrounded me as I yelled through my sobs. My father killed himself, he killed himself, Is dead. And the question that has plunged me since that moment came to my lips in screams, why? I must have asked it over and over again. I remember in that haze of emotions, one of you asked of my phone number and asked who you should call What was my password? You needed my husband's name as you you searched through my contacts. I remember I could hear your words as you tried to reach my husband for me, leaving an urgent message for him to call me. I recall hearing you discuss amongst yourself who would drive me home in my car and who would follow that person to bring them back to the store. You didn't even know one another, but it didn't seem to matter. You encountered me a stranger in the worst moment of my life, and you coalesced around me with common purpose to help. I remember one of you asking if you could pray for me and for my father. I must have said yes. And now when I recall that Christian prayer being offered up to Jesus for my Jewish father and me, It still both brings tears to my eyes and makes me smile in my fog i told you that i had a friend pam who worked at whole foods and one of you went in search of her thankfully she was there that morning and you brought her to me i remember the relief i felt at seeing her face familiar and warm she took me to the back comforting and caring for me until my husband could get to me and i even recall as i sat with her One of you sent back a gift card to Whole Foods. Though you didn't know me, you wanted to offer a little something to let me know that you would be thinking of me and holding me and my family in your thoughts and prayers. The gift card helped to feed my family when the idea of cooking was so far beyond my emotional reach. I never saw you after that, but I know this to be true. If if it not, if it were not for all of you, I might have simply gotten in the car and tried to drive myself home. I wasn't thinking straight, if I was thinking at all. If it were not for you, I don't know what I would have done in those first raw moments of overwhelming shock, anguish, and grief. But I thank God every day I didn't have to find out. Your kindness, your compassion... Your willingness to help a stranger in need have stayed with me until this day. And no matter how many times my mind takes me back to that horrible life-altering moment, it is not all darkness, because you reached out to help. You offered a ray of light in the bleakest moment I've ever endured. You may not remember it. You may not remember me, but I will never ever forget you, and though you may never know it, I give thanks for your presence and humanity each and every day. Who knows which side we might find ourselves in at the grocery store? on the floor or in the opportunity to help someone with compassion let's just sit for a moment Love and compassion are necessities, not luxuries. Without them, humanity cannot survive. The Dalai Lama. Thank you for your kind attention.